Welcome to the CEC Report for the 17th of March 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today in the studio is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show, Voter Revolt pushes major parties towards Glass-Steagall and national banking and the CEC factor in Australian politics. So firstly today, Voter Revolt pushes major parties towards Glass-Steagall and national banking. And we're not just talking about elections here, but we're talking about a general awakening of the population that is taking place and it's being shown in a variety of ways, Craig. Um, but the key point is it is driven by the economic crisis and so people are beginning to realise that the policies we've been pursuing for the last 30, 40 years are destroying this nation and they have to be dumped. So this week we've actually seen a number of crucial breakthroughs in the fight for Glass-Steagall and to overturn the free market economic consensus that has been wiping out our productive sector. So I'll just list them and then we'll go through them. Firstly, ALP frontbencher Matt Thistlethwaite uh, has admitted this week that Labor may well look at Glass-Steagall legislation under a Royal Commission. Well, interestingly, Lisa, look, people dislike the banks. I mean, the National Australia Bank has just lifted interest rates off its own bat by a quarter of a percent today, or yesterday, I should say. And the fact is that people are saying, well, let's have a Royal Commission to solve the banks. Now, for the last oh, many, many years since the global financial crisis in particular, 2008, we've been camp campaigning for what's called a Glass-Steagall. You can refer to this more as yeah. we go along. Glass-Steagall is a separation of the banks to have a healthy commercial banking system, the boring banking side, which is your basic deposits, lending out for mortgages, commercial loans and so forth for businesses, as opposed to the highly speculative merchant investment banking, which has gutted itself uh, full of derivatives. Yeah. And these are highly speculative in instruments. So there's a global debate, which we've been leading, uh, for the reintroduction of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's policy of 1933 of reintroducing a complete separation from the boring banking that you need for an economy and for this highly expectative banking. So Mark Thistlewaite's coming out and effectively saying that Labor, he didn't use the words Glass-Steagall, mm. but Labor is looking at this type of legislation. But see, this legislation is something that Donald Trump has, called, has said that he supports, the 21st century Glass-Steagall. It's very highly supported within the UK particularly a number, lots of members of parliament in the United Kingdom and other places around the world. Italy, for example, is also debating this type of legislation right now as we speak. So this is not some uh, issue that is uh, you know, on the horizon, it's mm. right now. Yeah, and so the backdrop is, uh, this was on Sky News on the 14th of March where Peter Van Onselen asked uh, Matt Thistlethwaite he said, if you win government, it looks like you're going to win government, so we're going to have a royal commission. If that happens, is it possible that Labor might look at legislation to break up the banks? Mm. Thistlethwaite said, yeah, there's a whole host of people who argue that we should break up the retail banking sections, so deposits and mortgages from the wealth management, the insurance that they've added on over recent years, and it's an approach that was taken in the US. It was watered down, unfortunately, by Bill Clinton, who in 1999 repealed Glass-Steagall, and he continued, it's something that they're doing in the UK and there's calls for it to happen in Australia. Now, he well and truly knows there are calls, uh, Craig. He's the Deputy Chair of the Standing Committee on Economics, and as such, he's been sent an email 
Every time someone has uh, signed our petition that we initiated on change.org calling for Glass-Steagall, uh, as did assistant uh, to Shadow Treasurer, um, sorry, he's also the assistant to the Shadow Treasurer, Chris Bowen, who also received an email every time someone signed that petition. And Bowen, when he was asked by the media about the comments of Thistlethwaite, did not rule out uh, such a move either. Um, now, of course, uh, Thistlethwaite said we would have to await the recommendations of such a royal commission, but this is a big shift in uh, Labor Party policy because in April last year, at a public meeting in Geelong, a CEC supporter had asked uh, Bill Shorten, the leader of the opposition, about Glass-Steagall, and he straight away said, oh, sometimes this question gets asked by the Citizens' Electoral Council, <laughs> uh, and he went on to say, we're not going to introduce the Glass-Steagall law. So they know that the calls for it are coming from here. This is making a big impact, Craig, yep. and they can't avoid it anymore. Well, look, Elisa, the point is the political winds have changed. You look at what's taken place with the election of Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom, which wasn't supposed to happen, the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom, which wasn't supposed to happen, the election of Donald Trump, which wasn't supposed to happen. And what you see is that there's a complete sea change because people are sick of the policies which we call globalisation as a generic overarching term. This is a policy whereby the big banks and corporations are put ahead of the people. Mm -hmm. Now, over the last 40 years, you've basically seen the sell-off of public assets, which, and in this the particular state, you know, you're now getting reports of the huge rip-offs in the electricity market by the electricity suppliers, you know, 42% padding on their profits based upon the price gouging that's going on. And you're starting to see a huge backlash, particularly in states like South Australia, yeah. which have now come called for unheard of for the renationalisation of the electricity industry. Mm -hmm. So these sorts of policies uh, are being driven by the fact that people are sick of the current sway yeah. the policies and the politicians are beginning to jump to it. So we saw, you know, the WA election was a classic example of this because um, the Liberal Party were punished both for the economic downturn post the raw materials boom, but also one of their big proposals was to privatise the state electricity system. So there was a big backlash against that. The ALP actually campaigned against it, which is a beginning of a shift for their policy. But also South Australia, in that example where the Premier Jay Weatherall announced a new package uh, for their electricity provision, which included um, this, you know, some crazy stuff like this new battery idea of increasing renewables and storing uh, in the largest battery facility storage ever in Australia. Um, but they will build, they want to build and run a new gas power plant, which is good. Um, but the, one of the in most interesting things, really, philosophically, is they talked about overriding the national energy market, meaning market forces. And mm -hmm. the energy minister, Tom Kutsantonis, said, we can no longer be at the mercy of the market because the market serves its own interests, not ours. He said, Australians fundamentally want to retake control of their power assets to suit their own needs because energy is not a commodity to be traded on a marketplace, it's an essential utility. We cannot live without it and putting it in the hands of shareholders and people who are interested in profit is unacceptable. This is a sea change statement, Elisa, because this is not what we've seen. You wouldn't have heard of that even two, two three years ago. I mean, it's, the fact is that this entire Labor Liberal government have been committed to the policies of globalisation, which is involving economic rationalism, you know, selling off the family jewels in terms of our private, our public uh, uh, utilities and so forth. You've had all of these policies 
that have literally given very valuable state-owned assets, publicly-owned assets to private corporations to rip the guts out of the people. And the people are saying, we've had enough. And Pauline Hanson's One Nation is simply a reflection of that process. Mm -hmm. And what you saw in Western Australia with the, you know, the fact that she got you know, between 4 and 8% 4 and 8% of the vote, members in the upper house, is the beginning of a process which the Turnbull government is saying, whoa, you know, and this is why today, you know, you see Malcolm Turnbull coming out uh, re-endorsing the Snowy Mountain Scheme, mm. you know, Snowy Mountain Scheme 2.0. You know, I'm the great infrastructure prime minister. No, he's terrified that if he doesn't actually deal with the public interest first and hasn't seemed to be uh, dealing with the fact that he'd we are facing major critical economic issues if we lose our energy source to power the economy. Mm -hmm. If he's not seen to act in that and actually do something, I mean really do something and not just talk about it, well forget it, the Liberal Party yeah. will be just washed out like they were in Western Australia. Yeah, and they, they see the examples over in the UK with Brexit, they've seen the election of Trump and so forth. So we've got to take a quick break, but we'll come back to this um, snowy policy from Turnbull and indications of moves in the direction of national banking as well, interestingly enough, right after this quick break. Welcome back to the CEC Report where we're discussing a voter revolt, a shift in the population driving the beginnings of important changes in policy of the major parties in this country. Uh, and one of the things, um, apart from Glass-Steagall, motion towards Glass-Steagall, towards overriding the market, particularly regarding energy, there's also been um, some signs this week regarding shifts mm. to the nature of, the qu very questions of the nature of banking, which are very important. Firstly, Treasurer Scott Morrison has called for what essentially would amount to a um, select kind of a government bank to actually fund community housing. So this is important. And also uh, in the speech Richard Di Natale, the Greens leader, made this week about a whole variety of subjects, he actually called for a people's bank. So we're going to take a look at this. Now, firstly, um, Scott Morrison, he's, so he's proposed an affordable housing finance corporation which would enjoy the backing of the federal government's balance sheet and would provide cheap capital over the longer term to build community housing. And there's been a task force set up to look into this and how it would be done. One of the models proposed to do it would be that the Commonwealth would raise up to $200 million through government bonds, which could be used to give loans to community housing providers or the private sector. Uh, and there's also other discussions as a part of this, such as a rent to buy scheme of course, you know, with the housing bubble the way it's going, it's becoming impossible for people to own their own home. Yeah, well, the government's in a very hard place here, Lisa, because on the one hand, through all the state governments and federal governments providing the first homeowners grants, they're artificially inflating the price of housing mm -hmm. and cutting out a lot of first home, owner, uh, first home buyers. You need much more than 200 million. You mean close to 2 billion. I mean, mm -hmm. there's so much need for yeah. public housing, cheap public housing. The only real way to do this is actually through a national bank. Yep. Like you said, you suggested, like we've done this before in our history where the Commonwealth Bank has stepped in as a, com as a as functioning as a national bank. We did it during the war, we did mm. it in World War I. But what's, what has to happen here is you have to have enormous numbers of free housing. I mean, you're talking about 100 to 200,000 residences right across Australia as a starting point for cheap public housing, mm. and you have to cut the speculation out of the housing market, which our government is hooked on. Mm. Now, um, nor does Richard Di Natale's proposal go far enough, uh, Craig, in terms of he called for a people's bank, but essentially 
Um, I mean, he compared it to the Kiwi Bank at one point. Uh, it, it sounds like it's pretty much the same as a private bank, has the same functions as a private bank, but it would be owned and run by the government. So he hasn't quite arrived at the idea of national banking to create public credit to develop the nation, which is the idea that we propose. Nonetheless, it's an important shift and move in the direction of um, you know, a bank for the people that would make the other banks competitive. So let's just listen to him talking about that this week. See, I reckon the old parties have been worked out by average Australians. They know that the privatisation of essential services has increased the concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands, and it's left customers to foot the bill. That's why we believe the time's come for a people's bank, one that injects real competition into the banking sector. Imagine real help for people buying their first house, for people in regional areas. Imagine a bank that pursues social objectives like housing affordability, not just profit-driven ones. Which bank? A people's bank. So, Craig, in 2009, when Joe Hockey, and this was right after the GFC, he said governments should not be involved in banking, he was expressing, you know, not only a prevailing consensus here in Australia, which is being turned over now, uh, but across the entire world. That uh, except, put in parentheses, except when we have to bail out the banks yeah, exactly. to the tune of trillions of dollars. <laughs> I mean, this is complete hypocrisy. What he's saying is that we can't interfere in the power of the banking system, or yeah. the power of the bankers. And the free now, market that goes with it. Government cannot intervene into the free market to control the power of the bankers. Mm. Now, this is not in, in our history. We've had leaders that have done this. You know, Chifley and Curtin, World War, uh, World War II did this, but go back into the World War I period where you actually had banks, the Commonwealth Bank acted like the People's Bank against the private banks and controlled them. And that's what we're talking about here is the power of the banks. Mm. And I think that this is what Joe Hockey is typically yeah. talking about. But, you know, there are moves against that now coming from the same politicians who have always, you know, avowed to protect the market and so forth. So this is reality hitting. They have to move, otherwise they won't get re-elected. They'll get swept. So mm -hmm. back to Turnbull on that subject. Um, so he announced this week a $2 billion spend to build new power plants and tunnels to expand the production of power by the Snowy uh, Mountain Scheme by 50%. And of course, this came in the context of supposed gas shortages, which are really because we're um, exporting, you know, we've got contracts to export, we're not using our gas domestically. But what was interesting is that Turnbull also admitted we can override the markets for the common good this week when he said that the Commonwealth government has enormous powers in this area. We have the ability to control exports, the considerable powers we have, uh, we would never shirk from using in the national interest. So that's another indication. Well, that's, this would be very interesting. You might even begin to build some high-speed rail in our country. Uh, you know, well. Well, well, <laughs> I mean, if he was really going to be an infrastructure prime minister, he could establish the national, national banking system that we've proposed, create large amounts of credit, and start to build massive infrastructure mm. projects. Yep. At least that, that would thoroughly inspire our population. The mm. fact is that the Snowy Mountain Scheme is the only national development project that we've ever built. It was done under wartime powers under the idea that we had to build power stations in the mountains in order to protect 
ourselves during the war because our most of our power stations were on the east coast, on the coastal areas, and would be vulnerable from attack. Mm -hmm. That was the argument that was used. So the Snowy Mountain Scheme was built very quickly during World War II, starting in World War II and after World War II, in order to provide you know, cheap hydroelectric power. The fact is that Malcolm Turnbull's come out and said we need to expand this is a flying in the complete opposite direction of every policy that actually the Liberal government has been standing for mm. for a long time. Yeah, and we'll listen to what he had to say about it last night on the project because this is actually an admission that these projects have been sitting on the shelf for decades languishing away. The exciting thing about this project is this is all designed. It's all the engineering drawings are done. It's all designed in the 80s, the 1980s and early 90s. And then governments owning the company decided not to do anything about it. And when I gave my speech in February and talked about the importance of storage and pumped hydro, the people at Snowy Hydro said, gee, we've got some plans here. And so that's why we can do the feasibility, bring it up to date, you know, with, in light of modern tunnelling technology and so forth. And with the, once the environmental approvals are given, the company believes they can build it in four years. Now, that's, that's fast. So this is good, but it isn't going to be immediate and we need to keep power stations like Hazelwood open in the interim. We need to make moves towards nuclear power, which we have called for extensively in the past, haven't we, Craig? Yeah, well, this is our economic, uh, Australia's blueprint for economic development. It's to deal with actually developing our economy and avoiding any sort of depression or recession in our economy. Look, we published you know, numerous projects, Elisa, which are ready to go now. There's even more projects on the table when you talk to private industry and so forth that want to, that want to build high-speed rail. But we went through extensively in our paper Lance Ender's proposal for extending and growing the Snowy Mountain Scheme. Look, it was, it was never really extended to the capacity that no. it needed to be, right? So, I mean, there's, we've, we've for decades now proposed large-scale infrastructure development projects as the way out of economic depression. Mm and funding that through National mm. Banking. People should call in and get a copy of this. I don't know how many there are left, but there's, you know, there's, there should be quite a few left now. We've been selling this nearly for 11 years mm. because it's still current today. Mm, that's right. And after the break, we're going to talk a bit more about the CEC's role in this policy shift that's unfurling. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing the CEC factor in Australian politics. Now, apart from our role in bringing Glass-Steagall to the surface, which is obvious to any of our regular viewers, we've also been mentioned in discussion of the policy shifts that we've just gone through over the course of the show so far in the last week. Um, firstly, in discussion of the Liberal Party giving preferences to One Nation in Western Australia, Senior Murdoch columnist Dennis Atkins in the 13th March Courier-Mail praised retired National Party Senator Ron Boswell, who for decades attacked the CEC because we led the fight against neoliberalism, globalisation, free trade, deregulation, privatisation, um, which of course the major parties like the Nationals had embraced. Uh, so Atkins uh, said in the Courier-Mail, that Boswell took on the Citizens Electoral Council and exposed them as conspiracy theorists who offered nothing but comfort in ignorance. Oh, can I yawn loudly now, please, Elisa? I mean, <laughs> yes, Ron Boswell should stay in retirement. I mean, <laughs> 20, 30, nearly 30 years ago, I was one of a 
group of, that founded the CEC, and we founded it on exactly the policies of opposing globalisation, economic rational privatisation, mm. and supporting the people. Even national banking, of course, is one of, one of our major policy platforms. And as soon as we proposed that, we became conspiracy theorists and far right wing and all this sort of stuff. And the leader of that was Ron Boswell, because he is trying to prop up a failing system. Yeah. His legacy is being washed out to sea. Mm. And that's the reality here. So they, they bring out these old crotchety fellas <laughs> to, to, to you know, remind us of all the, the, the legacy of attacking us because, in fact, their system is failing. And one of the biggest attacks on us, might I add, was always that, oh, the CEC warns of a global financial crisis. Yes, and look what's <laughs> happened. Uh, exactly. But even that night on television on the um, uh, uh, ABC um, Late Line, it was, um, Senator James McGrath felt compelled to drop CEC's name when reflecting on the WA election results and One Nation preference deals, and we'll just listen to that clip. Oh look, Ron is Ron is a champion. He he is uh, uh, the Lion King of of fighting the the far right politics in Australia. His positions against the Citizens Electoral Council and so forth are something that you know should deserve him um, high honours. Our position is that in relation to any preference deal, we will make a decision closer to the election on a seat by seat basis. So the real concern is not about One Nation when it comes to this whole preference deal controversy. It's about the fact that there's a massive political vacuum and groups with real policy ideas that others can pick up on, like ourselves, are right there in the middle of it. Now, in 2002, to give you some of the background, there was talk about merging the national and liberal parties. And Ron Boswell said then that a merger could have sinister repercussions because it could leave a vacuum that might be filled by an ultra right wing party akin to One Nation or the League of Rights. So it wasn't either of them they were worried about, but someone else. And we were at the time leading the opposition to the post 9-11 anti-terrorism laws that were threatening freedoms across the board. Um, and this was brought up even in the Senate debate on the question where people referred to the CEC. One said, my email is getting clogged up with continuous letters. Another said, we have all been subject to the intense lobbying about this legislation. So we were, you know, right up there in the media even. And in the Courier-Mail of June 14, 2002, one of Boswell's friends, journalist Terry Sweetman, wrote that nature abhors a vacuum even in the unnatural world of politics. So in the absence of a real debate and definable opposition to the government's intemperate anti-terrorism laws, the otherwise loopy and contemptible Citizens Electoral Council has moved in to fill the void. But they admitted there was no other opposition and there never has been apart from us. And even amidst all these attacks, we were always described, Craig, as highly organised and in one other attack as a national cohesive operation with significant funding and outreach capabilities. And Terry Sweetman wrote in another article that One Nation, by comparison to CEC, is positively benign, naive, but benign. So, Craig, the point is we have been right on everything we've said on all the policy matters across the 28 years or so of our existence. And now the major parties are being forced to react to that because the people are responding. Well, that's, that's right, Elisa. I mean... We don't have to justify or defend anything we've done in the past because it's actually all coming to the fore and it's all written down. It's not just an opinion uh, that we're making now. People can go back and look at our website, they can look at our policies and you'll find we're, you know, we're a philosophical political party. We stand in the idea that all human beings are created 
in the image of the Creator, that when you're endowed with creativity, that if we foster that, then we can make breakthroughs in scientific and technological ways that can then be fostered to increase the standard of living of the population. That's where we come from. So mm. we don't come from some pragmatic or populist viewpoint, and that's what we've stood for for the last mm. 30 years. So if people want to know more about where we come from, then that's really what they need to um, you know, get yeah. in contact with us. We're sort of like the invisible factor that's driving Australian politics from behind the scenes, even though a lot of people may never have heard of us. So call in for a copy of our latest Australian Alert Service. We'll send you one out complimentary and go to our website to find out more. So thanks for tuning in to the CEC Report this week. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. And join in next week again. Mm -hmm.